And good morning here on Fuzzy Logic. It's time for a dangerous adventure because we are going to Mars. We're not going to sit on this little blue planet for any longer than we have to. Actually, we're going to have to stay for a long time. Second thoughts. But we are going to inspire ourselves and we are going on a big adventure to Mars and who better to take us on that journey but our guest today all the way from the United States and I think I detect a slight New York accent there uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin who is the president of the United States Mars Society and he's the author of a ca The Case for Mars. Welcome Robert. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, am I right is that a, a New York accent I can detect? A little bit of a Brooklyn accent. Uh, okay and uh, to help us also along the journey is uh, welcome back to Fuzzy Logic, John Clark, and who is the Australian president of the Mars Society, and we had a fantastic show with you a few weeks ago. Welcome, John. Good to be back. And Broderick. Good morning, Rob. <laughs> okay, Mark. <laughs> so let, let's get ourselves to Mars because our, our mission, as I say, is to get us to Mars. And the first thing we need to do to get us to Mars is to say why. And I've given us a bit of a hint. But uh, Robert, can you kick off and say, what, what is it? What is it that inspires you and maybe inspires our listener to say, that little red planet way out there, it's a long way off. Why should we do it? Uh, why Mars? Uh, th there's three reasons to take on the challenge of Mars. Uh, the two most apparent are um, for the science. Mars is the Rosetta Stone that's going to let us know the truth about the prevalence and potential diversity of life in the universe. And the challenge, which I think uh, the societies that take on the challenge of Mars are going to be very amply rewarded from that, particularly in what it does for the development of, 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 of youth. The youth loves adventure. Humans to Mars program would make science the great adventure. And out of that challenge would get millions of young scientists, engineers, inventors, doctors, medical researchers, technological entrepreneurs. Uh, this would be of enormous benefit. But I think that ultimately the real... Uh, reason why Mars is important is for the future. Uh, if we do what we can do in our time, which is establish that first little human foothold on Mars, then 500 years from now there will be new branches of human civilization on Mars, and not just on Mars, but on hundreds of other planets in this region of the galaxy, because the human settlement of Mars is the opening stage of the transformation of humanity from a single planet into a multi-planet space-faring uh, species with the universe open to it. And when those people look back at this time, what we are doing today will they consider as important? Will they care about who won in Afghanistan? Uh, you know, will they care about who won in various political infights here and there? They, they won't even know about any of this stuff. What we did to make their civilization, their grand interstellar civilization possible, that's what will matter. Our time will be remembered because this is when people first set sail for other worlds. I, I think that's quite a remarkable thing and what you're saying is that I think that's the popular conception that science is just about collecting facts and building models and wheeling chemicals in test tubes well that's part of it but here we are in Australia and 200 and something years ago we weren't here uh, well there were the native Australians the Aboriginal Australians of course but there were no white people here and that took some kind of inspired and it took I think you would say a risk 
to do it. Yes, certainly. And, you know, if you look at, you know, of course, America was being settled at roughly the same time and and at a somewhat faster rate during that period. But, you know, we created uh, here and there two new branches of human civilization that have been tremendously productive, not just for the people that went there, but for humanity as a whole, all the innovations that were created in these countries, uh, and the example of of societies that created uh, ever greater opportunities for people to develop and use their human potential in, in a more humane kind of way than in the old world. And, uh, you know, this is how progress occurs. You know, Columbus sold the voyage to the New World to Ferdinand and Isabella that uh, they were going to find a spice route to the Indies. And they didn't. But shortly afterwards, they discovered some native civilizations that they were able to loot for some quantities of gold. But uh, ultimately, that was not what was important about the European advent to the Americas. What was important was the creation of new branches of civilization. Uh, the the gold the Spanish got came and went and ultimately didn't even do Spain any good. Um, but the creation of, you know, I'm, I'm more familiar, of course, with my own American uh, country, but, you know, a country that pioneered democracy and electricity and technology and developed aeroplanes and computers and nuclear power and manned spaceflight to the moon, okay, you know, this is something that really mattered. And, you know, the most important things you do are those that you do for the future. Uh, You know, Benjamin Franklin did these demonstrations of electricity in the French court when he was over there as the American ambassador during our our revolution. And a French aristocrat once came up to to, to Franklin and he said, you know, this this electricity thing of yours is is quite fascinating, but what possible use could it be? And uh, Franklin responded, of what use is a baby? And, uh, you know, of what use is a baby? Well, who knows? Uh, But human civilization on Mars is a a new child, a new branch of human uh, society, and it will be amazingly productive, I I believe. You know, it will, of course, make inventions in science and technology. It may pioneer new and alternative social forms that uh, give people greater opportunities than we have now. Uh, It will certainly have its own tradition of heroic deeds that will be used to inspire those who go out further. That That is something wonderful. And, and if you have it in your power to create something wonderful, uh, then you should. I... I, I feel inspired, honestly, Robert, because, and in fact, I'm going to get John because he was reading us a quote earlier off a plaque that's out at a Honeysuckle Creek, and he was quoting what the plaque says for, uh, by John Gorton, and the term that he used, and I'll get John to read it when he's got his, uh, found it on his phone, it was a dangerous adventure. John? Yes, thank you. Uh, this is, uh, as far as I can tell, a statement uh, released by John Gordon um, and, and went out. And um, I'll read it in full. Um, and it was uh, presumably in response to the first moon landing. Because he says, Australians are pleased and proud to play a part in helping to make it possible for the first man from the Earth to land on the moon. This is a dramatic fulfillment of man's urge to go always a little further, to explore and know the formerly unknown, to strive to seek to find and not to yield. May the high courage and the technical genius which made this achievement 
possible be so used in the future that mankind will live in a universe in which peace, self-expression and the chance of dangerous adventure are available to all. That is a, a, a great a great quote. Thank you, John. Actually, I want to throw a question to my friend here, Broderick, because Broderick is a science communicator. Do you see this, Broderick, that the people you deal with, because you, you deal a lot with the young people in the science circus and the, the travelling shows that you do, this sense of inspiration that the, the sort of like it's, it's an emotional thing here, isn't it, to a large extent? It's, it's the sense of possibility. Is that something that really you, you see when you do your tours? Most definitely. I, I think one of the, the biggest reasons that we go on the road to do science all around Australia is to provide that inspiration uh, because you can pick up a lot from a book, you can pick up a lot from the internet, you can even pick up a lot from you know, videos and that sort of thing. But to have, have someone there standing there in front of you showing you the possibilities and, and outlining the, the, the huge vastness that is out there to explore uh, just, just makes it even more amazing. Um, I got inspired myself last year when uh, Chris Hadfield, um, uh, an astronaut on the, the International Space Station, came out. And, you know, I was just amazed to, to be standing there in the same room as someone who'd been in space. And it just, just opened my mind to the possibilities and made me want to keep going even further. Um, it, so it just reminded me how powerful inspiration can be. So, Broderick, it's a, it's a pretty risky adventure. Well, it, John Gorton called it a dangerous adventure, and that will be the title of our program today. Would you sit yourself on the top of s several tonnes of propellant and launch yourself off into space with, with the hope that you might return safely? Would you do that? It's... It's, it, when you put it like that, no. <laughs> but the, the, I think that that's highly simplified, and there's so much that goes behind it. Yes, it is dangerous, but I mean, we're going to have to do dangerous things to to go forwards, and you know, we study them and we put stuff together to make it as as safe as possible to achieve what we want to achieve. But you have to, you're always going to have to take that one little extra step, yeah. um, and it's the people that I suppose are willing to take that extra step that are going to make the difference in the world. Well, par pardon the expression, but I would do it in a flash. <laughs> now, I want to ask our other two guests the same question. Like, John, uh, it, it is a risky thing, and I think we have a pretty high rate of uh, accidents. You know, I'm not sure what the statistics are. Maybe we can cover that. But would you do it? Oh, given the current level of safety, uh, yes, I would definitely do it. And, and, Robert, what about yourself? Can you talk about the what, what's it mean to you? Would you put yourself onto one of these devices and... Sure, if, if I had a chance. Look, this goes to the question of what is a good life. Is a good life one that is simply pleasant and, or is it one where you have a chance to do great things? And, you know, what Gordon was saying there, you know, the opportunities for self-expression and a chance for dangerous adventure, that is to say, to exercise your valor to try to do great things. Okay, not risk for the hell of it, okay, but, you know, not going over waterfalls and barrels and so forth, but, but nevertheless, the chance to do great things. You know, I had an uncle who landed on Normandy Beach, and I've envied him. Now, I'm sure if I had lived at the time, uh, I, you know, might not have been so envious and, um, and so forth, but nevertheless... He had a chance to do something great, and he did. And the 
Uh, now, hopefully there won't always be a need for wars, and but there will always be a need for heroes. And people will always want to have a chance to be heroes. And and, and hopefully within fields of endeavors which do not have a destructive component but are uh, purely constructive. And, 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 you know, a chance to test your mettle against the risks of opening up Mars to humanity, opening up a new world to humanity, this is something really great. And, to, uh, and it's something that we should not deny ourselves. It is a chance to open a frontier where many people will have a chance to do new and great things, to go where people have never gone before, to do what has never been done before, to create what has never been created before. Um, and uh, so, yes, uh, I, I certainly would embrace the opportunity, and, uh, and I think we as a society should embrace the opportunity. I, I love your phrase there, Robert, a, a good life. Mm-hmm. We're taking a chance. We're doing something to see what might be possible. And it's not a selfish thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. There is a selfish component, but you were doing it in the hope of advancing the cause of humanity. And on that point, before I move on, we are going to have a, a very special announcement at the end of the, end of the program, which concerns humanity. A very exciting announcement from Fuzzy Logic. But. We now operate in a society, in a system where we have to make something happen. And before the program, we were talking about the concept of, dare I say it, managerialism. So we now have to put a case to the bean counters. We have to uh, uh, talk to the people for whom the economy is the thing that matters, the dollar, the GDP, whatever the return is, which are important. How now do we put our case to get us or our, we uh, humans on a distant planet? How do we how do we navigate that? Okay, uh, you're asking me. Yes. Uh, well, this goes to uh, one of the things I alluded to earlier: uh, the value of an initiative of this type for developing intellectual capital. Intellectual capital is the base of the wealth of any nation. It's wealth, it's strength, it's quality of life. You know, um, Germany was bombed flat in World War II. Fifteen years later, they were one of the richest countries in the world and are still today. There are other countries in the world you could go to and you could every give every person there a million dollars and five years later they'd all be as dead broke as they are right now. And the, 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 the so how do you develop intellectual capital? Um, I think the key to education is inspiration. And, you know, what inspires youth? Adventure. Uh, You know, during the Apollo program in the United States, we doubled the number of science graduates at every level, high school, college, PhD, because youth loves adventure. And what Apollo did was make science the great adventure. And millions of boys wanted to get into it. I was one of them. Um, I happen to be a little uh, in a minority of that contingent because I actually ended up doing space technology. Most of the others went on to do science in any number of other fields. Who were the 40-year-old technological entrepreneurs who built Silicon Valley in the 1990s? They were 10- and 12-year-old little boy mad scientists making rocket fuel in the basement in the 1960s. Okay, 
And that was the real spin-off of Apollo. It wasn't so much the specific technological innovations in microelectronics and Teflon and so forth that NASA likes to cite. It was the intellectual capital. Well, if we had a Humans to Mars initiative today, it would be far more productive because today the science and engineering professions are, are much more open to uh, women than they were in the 1960s, where really they weren't, except for very exceptional people. And so you'd get millions, not only a little boy mad scientist, but a little girl mad scientist, and, and going on to careers as scientists, inventors, engineers, technological entrepreneurs, uh, advancing society in every respect. Uh, so, you know, in, in the U.S. today, there's, there's hysteria over uh, the, the, the lack of adequate performance of our educational system, and they're trying to remedy it by instituting more and more testing programs and drilling kids to perform for the tests. This is not going to improve education. You know, this is the philosophy of, you know, whippings will continue until morale improves. The, the way you're going to improve uh, education is through inspiration and, and a bold program of exploring and adventuring into space. That will inspire the next generation. Well, Robert, uh, I was one of those kids who used to cut out the, uh, the little shapes on the back of the cereal boxes with the Mars landers and, the, and I used to assemble little plastic models of the lunar land and John is putting his hand up. He did too. Uh, I still do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, we, we are both inspired and here I am today doing fuzzy logic and, a, and an advocate of science. And so, John, do you have a take on this? Managerialism will lead us all to die of bed sores lying on the couch in front of the television. What's, what's your take? I think so. I mean, I earlier in our conversation, before we went on air, uh, said that uh, managerial ability, management is about making sure the engines run or even that the, you know, the workers, in Robert's phrase, were actually clocking on and clocking off and ticking the right bo- uh, boxes. Leadership is about making sure the ship is going in the direction, hopefully the right direction, that we want to go in. And I think, uh, speaking in my experience in, in industry uh, and, uh, and previously in the public service, uh, and uh, even in community organisations, uh, we are obsessed by management rather than actually what we do. Uh, and uh, I think that's very sad because uh, we lose a vision. And as someone wrote uh, about 3,000 years ago, where there is no vision, people perish. Uh, not die, but perish. Uh, we just end up not doing anything. Couch potatoes, uh, grubbing her for an existence. Mm, mm. I... I'm going to think that one over, and uh, while we do that, I'm going to play us a track, and Broderick has brought us one in, which is pretty cool, and I think it even uh, relates directly to our guest today, who is Dr. Robert Zubin, the President of the United States Mars Society, with John Clark, the President of the Australian Mars Society, and Broderick, we have this track that you brought in, and it's called... It's called A Case for Mars, uh, put together by a symphony of science, where they uh, take scientists uh, speaking on various topics and then uh, auto-tune their voices to make it a bit melodic and uh, you might notice a a familiar voice on the panel today that's been auto-tuned into this song. Here it is. And here it comes, the case from ours here on Fuzzy Logic. Right, now let's talk about some of the practicalities of getting ourselves into space. And for some strange reason, I haven't been able to figure this out, I get science book for Christmas presents. (laughs) Uh, 
And uh, the one I got last Christmas was Dr. Carl Krusenitsky's book, and in it he has a chapter, a short chapter, describing some of the things that happen to the human body as we go through space. And the list is a little bit daunting, I've got to say. And so, for example, uh, on the Mir program, some of the astronauts lost 20% of their bone mass. There's a heart, changes to the heart and the fluid retention. You get more fluid in the nose. Did you, do you know that? Uh, it affects the eyes and I think that, that relates to the fluid pressure so that your, your ability to focus your eyes changes. Not necessarily for the worse, I have to say. Muscle loss uh, up to 40%, but that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty serious. And the immune system is also affected. So, Robert, can you, you talk about how we will manage some of these uh, effects on the human body? Yeah, we'll avoid all of them because all of those are effects of long-term exposure to zero gravity. And that can be avoided by rotating the spacecraft. Uh, the problem has been that the uh, so-called space medicine programs of the various spacefaring powers um, were taken over uh, in the 1960s by uh, zero-gravity health effects researchers uh, with reason at that point because we were going to the moon and it was only three days each way in, in which you can easily manage in zero-gravity. We wanted to know how we could deal with that. But they remained in control of it, and uh, zero gravity is not the right way to fly to Mars. It does decondition people. You can avoid some of those effects by strenuous exercises, as Shannon Lucid, for example, showed on the mirror. But I don't want to have to have astronauts doing two-hour workouts every day on their way to Mars just to stay in uh, reasonable shape. Uh, we should rotate the spacecraft and not have zero gravity health effects. You know. Um, in the early years of the U.S. involvement in World War II, uh, in 1942, we started having bombers go up above 20,000 feet, and uh, crewmen were blacking out due to hypoxia and uh, lack of oxygen. And so the generals uh, called in the doctors, because this was perceived as a medical problem. They said, well, what are we going to do about this? And the doctor said, hmm, this looks like a very interesting medical problem. Let's see if we can develop a cure for hypoxia. And the, you know, pills or treatments and so forth. The engineers came in and said, look, you, you don't need to do this. You just take an oxygen mask and you breathe pure oxygen and even though it's lower pressure you'll have more oxygen you'll do fine the doctor said get these mechanics out of here there's medical discussion so for about six months they continued to dink around with uh, various medical cures for um, oxygen deprivation which of course none of them worked and then finally they brought in the mechanics of the oxygen masks and they said okay fine we'll just do that and it worked okay and it's it, similarly you have these crazy uh, uh, medical researchers looking for cures for zero gravity deconditioning uh, when there's a ready engineering solution to this problem of rotating the spacecraft and using centrifugal force to avoid zero gravity altogether. And, you know, the, just as the doctors in 1942 pointed to all the technical issues associated with having compressed oxygen cylinders and masks and so forth above aircraft, of which there are some concerns here and there, but clearly much easier problem to solve than changing human physiology to need less oxygen. Similarly, you can point to various issues associated with piloting rotating space but it's utterly trivial compared to changing human physiology. And uh, so, basically speaking, um, 
just got to get these people out of the way and impose a sensible engineering solution to the problem. So it's actually quite simple, as you put it. Now, was it the 2001 Space Odyssey that the spaceship in that is rotating slowly? Yes, that's correct. This has been known for a very long time that this was the solution to it. But it's uninteresting from a medical point of view. Um, So, you know, do you have a group of people whose bowl of rice depends upon preserving this as a research field? Uh. And... uh, but the, the, this is certainly, from a technical point of view, a readily resolvable problem. Okay. All right. So let's let us move on to some of the other uh, challenges that we have to face. So they've obviously got to breathe. And I think last time we talked about the trip itself to Mars, John, were you saying it's nine months journey time, depending on the alignment of, the, of our planets? And how much propellant you're prepared to use. But so six months is a good round number for what you send people on, a little bit faster than unmanned spacecraft. Okay, so you need some technology, and this is all well developed, I gather, to supply the oxygen and the fuel and the water. Recycling the water, is that, uh, what's what's the round trip mission time? Is it 18 months or thereabouts, wasn't it? Um, Well, the the mission that Robert has, and he will expand on this, I'm sure, it's about a two and a half year round trip. Um, But you only really need to recycle water when you're on the trip there and back, when water is a scarce commodity. There are water sources on Mars, which which you can tap into. But, I mean, people have been demonstrating 80-90% water recycling on uh, Mir and on the International Space Station for decades now. So this is quite well understood technology. And, okay, now you mentioned propellant. So we've got to launch the thing, and it's, it's, it, propellant is really expensive, isn't it, because you've got to launch the propellant as well as the payload. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what sort of solutions have we got for that, Robert? Well, uh, the best solution is to make your return propellant on Mars. Uh, Mars has got a carbon dioxide atmosphere, um, and you can either uh, bring some hydrogen to Mars and react it with the CO2 to make methane and oxygen which is an excellent rocket propellant combination or you can even extract water from the Martian soil uh, as John alluded to and then you don't have to bring anything and with water and CO2 you can make methane and oxygen through very well understood chemical engineering techniques chemical engineering techniques that are over a century old um, and which have also now been demonstrated in miniaturized automated systems suitable for um, um, use on space missions. So h- how much hardware do you have to bring along with you to do that? Is it is it big, is it bulky, weighty stuff? Well, it, it weighs something, but for example, for a system, in my Mars Direct Plan, which I could describe in a minute, but where we do make the return propellant for the mission, Uh, The chemical synthesis plant that would make about 100 tons of propellant weighs about a ton. Okay, so is that uh, large in the scheme of things in a space mission? Is one ton a lot? It's measurable. It's not in the noise, but it's a lot less than 100 tons. All right, so so it's quite quite doable is what you're saying. Yes. Well, we we might break to another track here on Fuzzy Logic. We are undertaking a dangerous adventure. We're going to Mars, but that's a fantastic thing to do, not just because of what it does for our science and our technology, but because how it inspires us as humans. And some of us in the studio are old enough to remember the the moon missions back in the late 1960s. Our guest is Dr. Robert Zubrin, who is the president of the United States Mars Society and John Clark 
from the Australian Mars Society, myself, Rod, and Roderick. Roderick, what's the track we've got here? Uh, of course, we had to have a little bit of David Bowie on a day like today, and this is him with Life on Mars. Oh, uh, here we go, Rod. Fuzzy Logic, Life on Mars. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XFM Community Radio. And uh, joining us in the studio today, Broderick and Rod with uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Robert Zubrin. Robert Zubrin. Thank you. My bit of paper escaped uh, me. And John Clark. And presidents of the respective United States and Australian Mars Society. I'd like to just duck out for a little comfort stop there, and which kind of was relevant in a way because we were talking about resources and how we recycle uh, nutrients <laughs> and uh, water and so on during the space mission. This is very down-to-earth sort of a program. But it did occur to me while I was having a little tinkle there that... Uh, here on Earth, if you live downstream uh, on one of those major rivers, I go back a step in Canberra and other places in Australia, very upset and excited population about recycled sewage, as they call it, right? And so if you live on one of these major rivers, the water you drink has probably already been through seven bladders or something like that. So these problems have down-to-earth implications is what I'm getting at. Yes, and uh, yeah, I think Australians are very squeamish about this. And, you know, uh, when they were talking about recycling up in Queensland and Toowoomba, you know, the catch cry was, we do not want to live in Poowoomba. <laughs> uh, but, yes, we're, we're precious. I mean, if you live in a, a, uh, most European cities, and I think possibly in, in many parts of the U.S. as well, you know, the water you drink is, is recycled. And ultimately, of course, it is recycle for us via uh, rainfall. Uh, we were looking at this uh, one of the projects the US Society has started is analog research stations which are set up in remote areas where people can look at various design issues and living issues and research issues associated with living and working on Mars and indeed other planets and, and bodies in the solar system. Uh, we want to do this in Australia. We've got a station called Mars Oz we've designed and a group of students at ANU uh, looked at the water recycling system uh, for this uh, station which is under built but we're still uh, re uh, we can do research on design uh, and these ANU students discovered there is an off-the-shelf World Health Organization approved water recycling system they'll take grey water not black water not sewerage but grey water from us from your washing machine or uh, your shower whatever and reduce it to or, or return it to potable water standard it's off the shelf um, it's about the size of a um, um, uh, about two or three jerry cans of uh, you know, 20 litre jerry cans uses a small amount of power and it's very simple technology uh, and you know, we make a big fuss over water recycling but it's actually very straightforward yeah, isn't, isn't it weird how we will take water we'll put it into a river, let it go 100 metres downstream and suddenly it's now trickling pure spring water and it's suddenly okay I'm actually reminded of a, uh, an interview Broderick did some way back on a simple device which was uh, clay with uh, lots of porous, uh, it was you, you know the development that's project. Right. Yeah, the abundant water project that's happening all throughout uh, Southeast Asia. There, they're taking it into communities where they're basically uh, teaching the the villagers to fire their own clay uh, water filters. Very simple technique, but doing exactly the same thing of of taking uh, dangerous water and and filtering it to become potable water. Now, th this is all part, I think, of, of the general theme of Mars and what we need to do to get to Mars. A lot of these things come back to us here on planet Earth in day-to-day -day, uh, problems. Tell us a bit now, uh, Robert, about the 
project to Mars that you are now proposing? What what is it? Can you outline the major yeah, elements sure. of that? How could we do a human Mars mission? Uh, there's a number of ways. Uh, my uh, preferred way is through a mission plan which has a name. It's called Mars Direct. And uh, ideally speaking, it would be done with two launches of a heavy lift booster with comparable capacity as the Saturn V rockets that we used during the Apollo missions to the moon. The first launch sends to Mars a Earth return vehicle with no one in it. And it flies out to Mars, and it can go on a minimum energy trajectory taking eight and a half months because there's no one in it. And it, it goes and it lands on Mars, and then it, uh, it has a power source with it, a small nuclear reactor with power about 100 kilowatts. And it runs a pump, and it sucks in the Martian air, which is 95% carbon dioxide, and it reacts that with a small amount of hydrogen that it brought from Earth, uh, using some very well-known chemical reactions to turn the combination of hydrogen and CO2 into methane and oxygen. Methane's a fuel, oxygen's an oxidizer. You fill the Earth return vehicle up that way with rocket propellant. Then, once that is done, at the next launch opportunity, which will occur two years after the first, you launch the other rocket. And that sends out the astronauts in a habitation spacecraft, probably with a crew of four people in it, and they go flying on out to Mars. Um, you can rotate that craft easily by having the habitation spacecraft separate from the upper stage of the booster with a tether connecting the two of them, and then about a kilometer long tether, and then you rotate the assembly at about one revolution per minute, you'll create Mars gravity in the habitat. If you rotate it at a little less than two revolutions per minute, you'll create Earth gravity in the habitat and avoid all of these uh, notorious zero-gravity health effects and have the crew arrive to Mars in good condition. Then when you get close to Mars, you fire a pyrotechnic device that cuts the cable, the upper stage and tether go away, and the spacecraft then goes and aero captures into Mars orbit, and then lands at the landing site next to the Earth return vehicle, and they use the habitation craft as their house on Mars for a year and a half. Okay, they took them six months to get to Mars, year and a half on Mars, exploring widely, and then at the end of that time, they get in the Earth return vehicle and they fly back to Earth. They leave the habitation behind on Mars. So each time you do this, you add another habitat to the base. And before you, you know it, you've got the beginnings of the first human settlement on a new world. There is nothing in this that is beyond our technology. We are much better prepared today, much better prepared, to send humans to Mars than we were to send men to the moon in 1961, and we were there eight years later. If we had a commitment announced to do this and determination behind that commitment, comparable to that which... For example, President Kennedy displayed when he announced the moon program in 1961. We could be on Mars within a decade. There's no doubt about this at all. Yeah, and what you're doing, I think, by setting up that uh, the, the first payload is you're reducing the risk because by the time the astronauts land on the planet, they've got a fuel supply ready to come back again. Right. It's the propellants even been made before they've ever even launched from Earth. So there's no question about them being stranded because the propellant manufacturer has failed. It has already been completed before they've launched. Okay. And this, by the way, is a much safer plan than the conventional plan, which is sometimes uh, uh, proposed as an alternative, of landing in a landing craft with the propellant in it for your ascent. Because 
in the case of the Mars Direct plan, you know you have a fueled ascent vehicle on Mars that has already survived the trauma of landing, whereas in the other conventional mission plan, you're going in and you're going to land uh, fully loaded with fuel, but you don't know if, if you might not take some damage during the, the landing that would uh, impact your ascent vehicle. So minor technical question. So you you've, you're tethered on this long cable on the way out. Don't yes. you have to pick up a tether and for the return journey as well? Well, uh, you could. Uh, the ascent vehicle has a much smaller cabin, and but it also has an upper stage, and you could tether off that upper stage and spin it up. Um, in the Mars Direct plan, as we originally designed it, we didn't bother to include that because if there was some deconditioning of the crew on the way home. Uh, they don't have a mission in front of them. All they have to do is relax on the beach in Hawaii and sign endorsement contracts <laughs> while they recover. Whereas on on the way out, um, they do have a mission in front of them, and the physical condition of the astronauts will directly impact how good uh, their exploration abilities will be. Oh, okay, so they're going to be landing on a friendly environment when they get back with the endorsements all ready to go. Yes. <laughs> okay, now what, what kind of response are you getting to this plan? Well, uh, this plan uh, first proposed in um, 1990, which uh, was a counterposition to a very um, awkward plan that NASA had proposed. When the first George Bush announced uh, his Moon Mars initiative, NASA took that as a license to go and design a $400 billion program that would fund everything on their wish list. And in other words, they were basically using the program as a Christmas tree on which to hang the ornaments. And they designed the most complex and expensive mission they possibly could in order to make everyone's pet technology mission critical. And that sunk uh, the, the program in Congress from sticker shock. Um, the uh, but we proposed this, and it immediately became very controversial. Uh, uh, quite a few people liked it a lot because we were showing that you really could do this mission, you know, within a ten-year time frame and a reasonable cost. So let's do it. Other people were very upset because we were quite ruthless in eliminating from the mission all kinds of extraneous technologies that we didn't need. All these technologies, or the technologists behind them, had been justifying the programs of saying, you know, this would really be very useful when you go to Mars. And But our point of view was the technologists are not the constituents of the Mars mission. They are vendors to the Mars mission. And just as you don't want your vendors running your company, Okay, you you don't want the vendors running the the Mars program. You you'll need to use some of them, but you need to use them sparingly. You want to use as few of them as as you can. Yeah. So this is not the first time, or would not be the first time that humans have launched themselves off into distant, dangerous territories, because there is a whole history of human exploration, and we should be able to take lessons from the way that was done. Could we not? Yes, certainly. Like Magellan, and we were talking earlier about Columbus and so on? Mm. Yeah, there's a whole, um, a whole list, a whole history of human exploration. I mean, we, we talked about Cook coming to Australia and, of course, the Indigenous people. I mean, the, the first Aboriginal people to come to Australia launched themselves on, as far as I know, bamboo rafts across the Timor Strait, uh, which was all, uh, not as wide as it is now, but still a substantial body of water because they could see birds migrating in that direction. They could see perhaps smoke from fires on the horizon. They knew there was land out there, and they, they took these bamboo rafts 60,000 years ago and sailed them across uh, at least 100 kilometres of water uh, to come to this new continent. 
uh, and it extra- you know, the, the first great uh, sea voyage of world history and and there been yeah the Vikings crossed the Atlantic well before Columbus there was Columbus Cook coming to Australia the Spanish and the Portuguese sailing in Indian Ocean uh, the Chinese sailing you know uh, right through the Eastern Pacific into the Indian Ocean and perhaps further the Maori and the Polynesians across the Pacific with Stone Age technology and uh, even Maori legends of seeing floating islands of ice and so they they pushed south into the towards the Antarctic. I mean, this is something fundamental in the human race. You know, right, going back to the first people coming out of Africa, uh, you know, to go beyond the horizon. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are inheritors of that. The torch has been passed to us. And what are we going to do with it? Yeah, you know, beautifully said, John. And uh, there were no management committees back there, <laughs> you know, before, before they set sail in their little bamboo rafts across to uh, Australia. Um, Look, on that point, uh, we, we might move on to a the big announcement because I want to have a bit of, of a discussion about this because I know it's a precious topic to our guests today. And here on Fuzzy Logic, I'm very pleased to say that coming up for National Science Week on Sunday the 23rd of August, we have an event and a public forum and it's going to be located at the Shine Dome. And we have a very prestigious guest list for this. And the subject is going to be, Can Science Save Humanity? Now, we hit the big topic here, and we've got the the real calibre of guests to discuss it with us. So this includes, at this stage, Clive Hamilton, who's an outspoken commentator on uh, global warming. Uh, Professor Will Steffen, who is the uh, President of of the Climate uh, committee, I can't remember the name of it, sorry. Dr. Hilary Bambrick, who is a, uh, it's interesting that she is doing this sort of work. She is looking at the effects of mitigating climate change and on people on, on Pacific Islands and in Ethiopia and so on. And she's working on community programs on how people will adapt on the ground to changes in our climate that are heading this way. And as of Friday, I have a very excited to say our special guest will be former Governor General of Australia, General Mike Jeffrey, and who is an advocate of uh, protecting our soils and will be a, a great addition to our panel, Can Science Save Humanity? And John. Uh, I'm very pleased to hear about uh, someone talking about soils because soils are disturbingly unloved and yet they are the basis of our food supply, our timber supply and um, you know, people get very excited about pygmy possums which is fine because they're cute but our biggest conservation challenge uh, is the m- maintaining uh, the soils of Australia and indeed the world so they continue to feed um, our population and supply us uh, the clothes, a lot of the clothes we wear uh, and the timber that we use for our houses and so on so that's, that's really exciting uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what other com- things come out of that discussion Well I, I have two objectives for this, or really it's the one objective and I'm hoping that our audience will come away with a sense that oh crap this is a big problem, mm. but if we're going to solve this problem, we need science. So, Robert, what's your, your take on the, on the role of science? And we'll just go back a step. Do you see the problem as being as serious as what I've, um, as what I've just been hinting? Um, I think the only serious problem here is that there are people who are questioning the value of science. Uh, the... Uh, 
we're not in danger from overpopulation. We're in danger from pe people who think there are too many people. Um, the uh, And uh, we're not in danger of running out of resources. We are in some danger from people who would stop us from developing new resources. I mean, look, uh, you know, there's no free lunch on anything, but if we look at the big picture, okay, I just look in terms of my own lifetime. I, I was born in 1952. I have memories that go back to about 1957. I can remember Sputnik. It's the first major world event in my life that I can actually recall happening. Okay, at the time of Sputnik, um, the uh, world was using about uh, 2.4 billion tons of carbon a year. And the average GDP per capita in the world was about 2,400 U.S. dollars uh, okay, per year. Uh, today, uh, both of those numbers have increased by a factor of, of four. Um, we are using about 9 billion tons of carbon a year. And the average GDP per capita has gone up to $9,000. That's a factor of four increase within my living memory. And that means... Billions of people have been lifted out of hopeless poverty as a result of that. That is, uh, for, in secular terms, the greatest story ever told. Um, and so what, what has happened? Well, uh, we've had a 400% increase in uh, GDP per capita. We've had a 0 0.6 degree centigrade increase in global temperatures. That is true. Um, the... And we've also had a 15% increase in the rate of photosynthesis on Earth due to an increase in CO2 levels in the atmosphere accelerating plant growth. So you have one uh, moderate uh, ill effect of the uh, global warming. You've had a positive effect in increased fertility of the biosphere and an enormously positive effect in uh, decrease of poverty. So, um, you know, and what do we have to thank for this? Um, Science, technology, industrialization. Uh, there's been increased pollution in some places, uh, notably in China, for example. Uh, and yet, I would say average health in China, despite the pollution, has greatly improved due to decrease of poverty. Um, and uh, and there's been great decreases in pollution in the advanced sector. You know, London in the 1950s used to have uh, brown clouds that actually killed people. Um, and uh, in the United States, pollution has decreased due to technological progress. So uh, any change, uh, generally speaking, the change is designed to bring about improvements into first order it does, and there's generally second order problems that go along with it. But the greater our capacities, the greater our uh, uh, capacity to deal with problems. And the more people, the, the higher their standard of education, the higher their standard of living, the more inventors we have, the more so, inventions so, we have, and the more rapid the rate of improvement. So, Robert, I think it's true to say that you are a, a technological optimist, that we can do it with the right inspiration, the theme for today's program, and with innovation, and we can do it if we really put our minds to it and using science. I have to cut us off now because we've just run out of time and it's been a fascinating program and I'm absolutely delighted to have both of you into the studio today. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Zubrin, who is the President of the United States Mars Society, Dr. John Clark, President of Australian Mars Society, and Broderick, and some guy on the buttons, that's me, Rod. 
time to go and you can pick us up on podcasts oh, don't forget ask fuzzy uh, in the Canberra times today defibrillators we're having a heart theme and pacemakers coming up next week that's in Canberra times and fairfax time to go catch you later